In episode 16 of the Executives in Wealth Management podcast, we were joined by Ruth Sturkey, the famous Ruth Sturkey. It was a really interesting conversation. My main area of interest prior to going into the conversation was to to try and unpick the emotional journey that Ruth has been on post-business sale. Ruth obviously ran a, a very successful boutique and beautiful, to, to use her phrase, an IFA based in London, which was ultimately acquired and absorbed into Paradigm Norton. Merged, I think is the right word. Um, but really, I was interested to understand the human element as an advocate of human well-being that, that, that Ruth has been on as a founder that had a clear purpose and direction with a business that she was building to understanding how life and, and therefore well-being has evolved and changed post that sale. And really interesting perspective, I think really useful to consider for other founders of advice firms or founders of any business in general. Life is different post a business sale and it's important to, to do it in the right way. So really interesting conversation. Ruth is fantastic. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Ruth. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. How it's are you? It's a pleasure. I'm good, thanks, Tom. Yeah, I'm, I'm very good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm looking forward to this one. <clears throat> good. This one. Good, good, yeah. good. Me too. So, purpose of the podcast, Ruth, is to provide you with an opportunity to tell your story. Not so much your perspective on the direction of financial planning or, or wealth management more generally, although we can get into a technical conversation if you wish, but more about... Ruth and your journey as a, as a, I suppose, an entrepreneur, a business owner, a founder, and now as someone who's been on a journey and, and come out the other side, and I guess where you see yourself now and, and going forward. Um, I always think that a nice place to start is to learn a little bit about you as a younger person and kind of your upbringing and, and ultimately your route into professional services and then, and then wealth management. So, yeah, what's your story, if you will? Oh God, Alan, if you got Tom, um, <clears throat> I'll try to give you uh, the, the slightly nutshell version of this. But, but I, um, I'm I'm now in my late fifties, so I was educated during the seventies and eighties um, in a small-ish town in North Devon, and so the kind of horizons for me were. Um, you know, not that great, not for any ill intent or bad purpose or anything. It was just kind of what it was like going to a comprehensive school, then going to the local college to do to do A-levels. Um, um, there was no uh, idea of university or p- polytechnics as we still had back then. It, it just wasn't on the mental map. Nobody from my family had been. And so when I finished my A-levels, I um, moved to London to train as a nurse. And for me, that was quite a pivotal point. Um, not so much the training as a nurse, but that teaches you some amazing life skills, as you can imagine as a 19-year-old that you find yourself on a ward, a male genito-urinary ward, and you've just got loads of catheters and uh, urine to deal with. You know, that's, that's pretty confronting for a 19-year-old. But it was that move to London and that different perspective that being in a big city and surrounded by... 23 other people in my group that have come from different backgrounds and have got different outlooks on life. And so I ended up qualifying as a, as a nurse. Um, I was a staff nurse for a short period of time, but it was never my cup of tea. So I moved fairly swiftly from that into uh, drug sales. But what I mean by that is obviously pharmaceuticals. And again, that was a bloody horrible job. Um, and I then moved into car sales. So there's a theme here, isn't there, around sales, Tom? And and then from car sales, uh, which taught me a lot about the uh, big bad world and um, how cutthroat people could be, um, <laughs> uh, I then found myself moving into financial services. And I started in a mortgage brokerage, which me and my then boyfriend set up in Newcastle in the Northeast. And it's a very different environment to what we find ourselves in now. Um, kind of moved out of that environment and got more into 
direct sales with uh, what was standard life back in the day to start to learn a bit more about financial services. And then found myself in the early noughties actually going to work for a, a really good firm in Milton Keynes. Um, and I, at that point, I started to take my exams. It was at that point that people recognised that there was a need for people to become more qualified. So um, by the time it got to 2006-ish, I was a chartered um, financial planner. But I was working in an environment then for a national IFA, so I'd moved from, on from Milton Keynes. And, and I saw what was going on around me as still being very sales-led. Um, and that wasn't what I thought was the right thing to do. So at that point, me and um, my late business partner, who actually had been my boss, um, decided that we were going to set up our own financial planning practice and try to deliver something that was a little bit different. Um, I had about a six-month notice period to work or non-compete. And during that time, I found what is now quite commonplace in, in financial planning, and that is cash flow planning, evidence-based investing, platforms, um, and... Uh, and we were fee-based, which was which was quite unusual back in 2007. And so we we carved out this beautiful business that we were incredibly proud of. And we had a really clear vision of the type of clients that we were going to serve. And we and we stuck to that. So we we when I reflect back on it, and I talk to people starting their businesses, you know, currently or over the last few years, and one of those most difficult things, of course, is client acquisition when you're starting with a blank sheet of paper. And I guess we were lucky because both myself and Gareth, who's my late business partner, we had had a track record by that point of dealing with some some really good clients. And and they wanted to follow us. I mean, I think this was the 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 thing that we were able to draw a distinction between the business that they were in. Uh, when when Gareth and I left and the very much sales orientated approach of that business and a business that was very focused on that kind of cliche of client care and you know it's a cliche isn't it because all business owners and all businesses saying oh you know, clients at the center of all of our processes and I think it's it's almost like we we can't define that we can't say that it's for our clients to determine whether that's what it feels like so we had the Red House for about seven years, uh, sorry, 10 years. Um, and we had various, um, uh, I was going to say ups and downs. Like we had emotional ups and downs over that period, but it was one of a business growth. And then in 2017, uh, we then moved, uh, merged uh, the Red House into Paradigm Norton, where I remain as a non-executive today. Um, and as well as being a non-exec for Paradigm Norton, I also do some coaching of financial planning business owners. And I'm the chair of the Institute for Financial Wellbeing. So it's been quite a quite a long journey that I kind of, you know, skated over there for you, Tom. But feel free to pick up anything that you think might be of interest. Yeah, no, it's a nice, uh, yeah, you, you, you get a lot into, you know, five minutes, I think. Um, okay, so... So there's a couple of points in there. Um, I think I'll start with this kind of where did this observation come from that? So if I understood what you just, if I'm processing what you just said, you said that you recognized that the organization that you were in just before you decided to go and set up on your own was, wasn't quite aligned with your own values. But at this point, because you hadn't gone through your notice period or your non-compete, you hadn't discovered, you know, I think in 2007, Transact were now fee-based and, and whatever, um, evidence-based investing. So you were still on a journey to explore that in the future. So, so where did this desire or, or this, even this question mark come from, there's a better way of doing this? What was the, the, the driver to kind of, we have to do it differently. This isn't right. Yeah. Um, when I think about that, it was a sense of, from my perspective, I had 
taken a whole bunch of exams that people were taking less exams back then. You know, I, I kind of think these days being chartered um, for for most people, particularly younger people coming through, it, it it's a hygiene factor. But it but it wasn't in those days. And I and I so therefore I think for me I got to this point of frustration whereby I really wanted to do a good job uh, with the team that I was managing. I was looking after a small branch in London for the the, 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 the firm that I was working for. And I felt really strongly that we shouldn't just be selling people products. And what I saw going on in the wider organization, um, even if not in the in the in the with the team I was managing, was that there were there were people churning um, group personal pension plans as a commission play. And that resulted in very highly paid star, in inverted commas, financial advisors earning significant amounts of money doing what I believe wasn't in the client's necessary best interest. And what you then also find is that when I think about, again, my observation from the firm perspective that I was working for, there is that then really difficult quandary that a firm finds itself in because it has to make some really difficult decisions. So they were hooked to the addiction of commission and big commissions coming in. And that paid all of the salaries and all of the bonuses and everything that was happening in the short term. But it was a, you know, I always felt that indemnity commission was a bust uh, business model even when I first sniffed it in 1989, when I first got involved in financial services. So to see it then, you know, um, at play um, significantly, I, I just it just didn't feel right to me. And so what I wanted to do was to distance myself really from this type of um, approach and this type of attitude. And so I started to get a bit grouchy. So when I was sitting in my, I was stuck in middle management, which it wasn't it wasn't a great place for me to be where you had lots of views and opinions where you had very little influence and i remember sitting around a boardroom table with all of my um other middle managers and the, and the board and before the meeting me and all the middle managers were all having a right old whinge by what we saw going on in the business but then when we actually stepped into the meeting room i kind of went out on a limb to make some point the point of which I do not recall now. And there was just silence around me. Nobody else was prepared to support that view. And I felt very um, isolated and left out on a limb um, and kind of almost hung out to dry. I was like, God, bloody hell, Ruth's saying it, but it's not what we think. And and of course, that was rather agitating. And, um, and then I started to think that um, the directors of the business, I didn't rate them. I didn't think they were, they were doing a particularly good job. But the one thing I recognise is they were at least giving it a go. They were putting their head above the parapet and they were trying to manage the business in the way that they thought was best. And so what I suddenly realised was, you know what, Ruth, you can either be that moaning employee where you're just sniping all the time, thinking that things aren't good enough or you could do it better. If I thought I was any good at it, give it a go. So I, it was very much a you know, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. You know, when you put, when you start to moan and whinge yourself, I have kind of one of the things I've noted in, noticed in myself is I recognize you either, sh you know, put up and shut up or get out and do, do something different. So that was the kind of genesis of it. So that was a very long winded answer to your question about, you know, kind of almost how did we decide to do the things that we did? And, and it was, we, I had this six month period, as I mentioned, whereby Myself and Gareth, uh, Ma, my uh, late business partner, I, we we had this blank sheet of paper. Um, we had a number of years' experience, and Gareth used to be my boss, so his experience was considerably more than mine as well. But we also had the opportunity to explore some of these new things that we saw coming through. So I remember Gareth and I went to meet uh, again the late Ian Taylor at Transact and knocked on his door and said, "What's this? What's this?" platform thing so he explained to us what platforms were and he wouldn't budge on his pricing which we were very frustrated around but uh, you know ultimately admired 
um, I went to a cash flow presentation, this thing called Truth by Paul Armson, and thought, bloody hell, that's amazing. That answers questions I didn't even know existed. And then somebody mentioned this rather obscure fund management group called Dimensional, to which, to which I thought, yeah, oh, that, that, I could pick you up on that, Tom, but, um, but maybe I just was. And, um, but I remember thinking, you know what, um, who can this lot be? I've never even heard of them. They can't be that big. And again, I went along and what they were just talking about, whether you call it brainwashing or not, Tom, was bloody common sense about how investment markets work. And for the first time, I understood investment and actually what a lot of hocus pocus exists around that thing that ultimately we can't control. So we had these, these three things and this idea about building this beautiful new business. Um, Gareth was still uh, in, quite gung-ho about building a massive business. And at that point, he wanted to take on venture capital and get to 20 advisors in the space of 24 months. And I just knew how difficult it was to recruit really good people, um, you know, a, a subject that you'll also know very dearly, you know, in the current climate, I'm sure. And I just thought, that's not, just not possible. We can't, we can't hold both of these two things in tension at this particular stage. So we decided that we were going to go for boutique and beautiful. And that's, and that's what we built. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Boutique and beautiful. Yeah, it just came to me just then. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't on the office wall. It wasn't, it wasn't on the office wall. No. If I was doing it now, maybe I'd have that in neon lights. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, so let's talk about my tongue-in-cheek statement of the brainwashers then. And you know, I'm an avid trap listener. So shout out to those guys. And you know, they, you know, invest in global equities and leave it alone. Um, and I'm not going to get into opinions and what I believe is right and wrong, but you know. I listen to trap a lot and I can see that I can see the logic. Um, how did you find, um, yeah, we're, we're bordering, bordering into a technical conversation here, but how did you find, um, it's a philosophy, isn't it? It's not just an opinion. You know, you have to, it has to be ingrained in every part of your belief. You know, the moment you're sat in front of a client and the markets have gone down and your confidence drops, that's it it's game over you know you have to see it um so how did you go from that journey of discovery to you know all consumed i believe that this is the right outcome for the next 30 years for you yeah i think um it is a belief and a philosophy and i think as um an advisor or a consultant, a salesperson, call it what you will, because there's an element of all three, three of those things in the service that we provide to our clients. Ultimately, you have to believe in something. And if you don't believe in something, then that lack of confidence will come through to clients. So when I learned how investment markets worked and the randomness of performance but also how different parts of the markets work. And we will try not to make this, get, you know, start to get overly technical, but the very simple premise that in order to get a higher return, you need to take more risk. So, you know, there's a few truths around that. So, oh, okay, that's interesting. So that tends to mean value in smaller companies. Um, globally diversif diversified makes a huge amount of sense. You know, I always used to marvel at, I'd go to a, I don't know, investment breakfast by bloody, bloody, blah investment group. And I would sit there and be in awe of people that were saying, yes, it's Europe. Europe is the place to be. Or, you know, you go, oh, my God, how do you know that? That's so clever. So there's all of this um, kind of crystal ball gazing dressed up as better knowledge and, and I think until you start to understand how investment markets work, and ultimately it is a net sum game in terms of, you know, who wins and who loses, you can then start to, I think, think much more logically and rationally about how you set your investment strategy and recognize that over the investment 
period of, say, 30 years, which it is for an awful lot of investors, you know, even if they're, you know, maybe coming towards the end of their working lives, unless you buy an annuity, many people have a very long investment horizon. You can take away all the drama. You can look back and, okay, you know, there is that classic thing, this time it's different. And of course, as a financial planner, we're not immune to our own emotions and concerns. Maybe this time is different. But until I've got really clear evidence that this is correct, I'm actually going to hold on to what I believe to be true and the evidence that I have about what's happened in the past. So for me, when I observe people that are working in active markets, I actually, my for me personally, I actually feel a bit, I feel a sense of apprehension on their behalf because they're trying to guess something that is unknowable. So for me, it, it very much took the mystique out of something that I actually think has an element of Emperor's New Clothes about it and allowed me to focus on the things that we could influence and the great work that we could do. And I think you then take uh, a lot of the drama out of the conversations with clients and the clients start to recognise the work that you are genuinely doing on their behalf rather than pretending to by being, you know, trying to guess what happens next. And, you know, you might get it right, but you might not. And then where do you go from there? Mm, exactly. And I think... There's no argument that once you, I mean, it's easier in a in a in a in a strong market for sure. But once you educate the clients on your investment views, um, the conversation can very much focus on the person and the plan and the outcome that you're looking for. Whereas I think sometimes with an active approach, you have to spend you almost justify the um, performance. Um, mm. It's a different conversation, isn't it? But it's a very um, difficult, different conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But let's focus on uh, boutique and beautiful. I let's like do that. that. A lot. Yeah, <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, I think it's a little bit like our business as well. We're we're trying to be a boutique and beautiful. Um, so there was this value argument that you had with with Gareth, I believe, um, of scale versus this this is who we are and this is why we're doing it and if we try and push too much our why is going to be diluted somewhat potentially um so how did you um how did you grow the business and what did the business look like over the next few years in the run-up to the deal or the merger into into paradigm north and how did you hold on to that why and this vision or maybe it's just value base that you had quite clearly at that point yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we grew very slowly, very steadily. We never got beyond um, seven or eight people at any given point in time. When we merged with Paradigm Norton, our turnover was probably up to 1.2 million. And I don't know, we probably had, I don't know, 110 million assets or something to just give some of the metrics that People will often want to get their heads around. And we had about 75 client families. So we we had a very clear vision of the clients that we would serve and we would add value to. I think we, we, we had um, a very strong value system in the business. And we were very clear on the way that we dealt not only with our clients, but the way we wanted to interact with our team and, and have our team involved in an awful lot, lot, of, lot of the decisions. And I think for me also, it was also a lot about leading by example. So I would be in the office on, you know, so bear in mind we are talking pre-COVID where most people were in the office rather than working remotely. Um, but we, we, were, we were office based. We all shared our knowledge and experience with each other. We were all about everybody learning and growing. You know, everybody had their own personal development plans and things. We were really clear about the type of clients we wanted to deal with and the kind of characteristics that those people had. We didn't want to deal with just anybody just because they got a load of money. Um, and, you know, I think we genuinely walked the talk. We, you know, I, I never wanted anybody in the team to be working more than their nine till half five. And if they were, it was, it was an exception. I didn't want that ever to, ever to be the rule. 
Um, I didn't want people being on holiday and to think there was any expectation that they would be checking emails. Um, we, we didn't send emails. We had a kind of unwritten rule that we didn't send emails after six, seven o'clock at night. Um, if, if somebody did happen to be working late and certainly not over the weekend, you know, it, it, it's all about re recognizing that people have got a life that's, that's outside of the business and it's, it, you know, it, it, there just needs to be a balance between, you know, working hard and, and, and relaxing. And I think we were always really clear on that. I also had a, my, my other business partner, Linda, I haven't mentioned yet was our practice manager slash ops director, uh, which sounds grand when there's only seven of you, but, you know, be, between, um, you know, Linda and I, and I'm saying about Linda and I, because Gareth retired somewhat earlier um, due to ill health. We, we just were very clear about what we needed to do to have a good business. And, and we uh, always, I always remember going out to lunch with the client and her saying how much she enjoyed being a client of the Red House and me saying, you know, what, what is it about what we do that, that, that you particularly like? And she just said, well, you always do what you say you're going to do. Now, to me, that's such a basic fundamental of business. Um, that I can't even believe that somebody calls that out as something that they they admire because why wouldn't you do what you say you're going to do? So I think we just, um, I'd like to think everybody felt they had a voice um, that people could input um, into, the, into the business. Ultimately, somebody has to make a decision. So I'm sure some of my past colleagues might go, well, I remember that time, Ruth, when, you know, of course, somebody ultimately does have to make a, de a decision. Um, but we were open and transparent as far as we possibly could with the team. They knew when things were good. They knew when things were a bit more tricky. But we also knew we all had to pull together to, you know, to to have our boutique and beautiful business. So um, that, yeah, I, it's difficult for me to think of, you know, to know what any magic source is, um, Tom, to be quite honest. I think, you know, when when we were, I guess for me, where it came from, when we were setting up a business, I was just really clear that I wanted it to be a place where people wanted to come to work and um, that they were treated equally. I got, you know, I, I'd worked in businesses where it's a very rem and us uh, type environment. And, uh, you know, we, we all have our, our role to play in any given business and no one individual is any more important than another individual is. We all are part of the tapestry that makes up a business being successful or not. And just because, uh, you know, I, I, me or Gareth or Linda were the decision makers didn't mean that we were any more worthy than than anybody else. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I kind of think it's quite strange when people feel otherwise, but. Yeah. There's so many links to well-being here that I'm, well, I'm desperately not going to go there. We'll go. We'll get there later, but I'm not going to. Um, I love that point around the tapestry. Um, it's a really nice vis visual way of, of thinking about it. Um, it's a point I want to come back to, but I want to ask you a question before. Um, you talked about being a role model and um, leading by example and... Um, you don't want your team to have to go you know in too far out of the nine to five um did you find that you were able to hold yourself to the same standards um do you know what i think reasonably so wasn't always the case i there were odd occasions i worked at weekends but it was an odd occasion and we were very, very clear that nobody was ever contacted on holiday and nobody looked at their emails. And when I'm, you know, and, and I think the only time there may have been any diversion from that, I, yeah, I do remember one occasions not long after Gareth had uh, retired from the business and we got a client that could be a tad awkward at times even though they were very nice and I think something could have just happened and the team just wanted to get some reassurance from me that their response was going to be fine um, and that was by a text not by me looking looking at at emails so yeah I think so I think the difference when it's your own business Tom is even though if I wasn't physically you know sitting writing a report or um, 
you know, responding to client emails, you live and breathe the business. So I may not have been actively involved in the business, but I think I probably spent a lot of time thinking about it when I wasn't in uh, involved in the business. Um, but I've always believed, you know, very much in, um, well, actually, I'm going to say, I was going to, the word I was going to use was boundaries. And I didn't even know it was boundaries. It's just that it's nice to have time away from the thing that you are otherwise doing on a Monday to Friday, broadly nine to five basis. And so, you know, maybe, maybe I did have reasonable boundaries. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's always important to, to make sure that you're doing the things that are going to make yourself feel well and energized for the week, for the week ahead. And that's what we did. I find it quite impressive. Um, I'm less good at it. I'm honest. Um, that's, I, that's honest. And, you know, maybe yeah. you're at a stage in your business where that's that's okay. It kind of needs to be. You know, I think businesses go through different stages, different chapters when, you know, you do have to do what's necessary. Um, and, you know, I, I remember times when we had... Um, your team mean, uh, members leave and you suddenly just think, okay, well, I've just got to suck this up and get on with it. So, you know, I think uh, it's trying not to make it the norm, I think is is the key. Yeah. Yeah, I saw, um, there's actually a post on LinkedIn, most of it's, you know, pretty average stuff, isn't it? It's sort of drivel, really, but there's the odd gem. Um, I saw it was the, I won't name names, it was the founder of a scaling professional practice and he talked about the kind of cycle of you know, scale consolidate scale consolidate and the uh, i suppose continuous development mindset we're always looking to get marginally better but every now and then in a cycle you jump 50 percent higher than you were the year before you know you're just up a whole another level and it comes with a level of intensity and stress for you and the team and and energy that needs to go into it and it's kind of tiring and, and to some extent i feel that's kind of this conversation is about you but i think it's about business owners um i feel that's kind of where we are this year um we're on this journey to become a search firm and i think there's a very very big difference between an agency and a search firm and we've been somewhere in between for the last few years and then this year we i'm not going to start talking about signia but w the energy that's had to go in the thinking of what a service proposition should look like and needs to look like to be this business that you want to become there are just parts along the, the cycle where it just takes more for a period of time doesn't it and I, I think it's quite interesting to i saw that post and kind of recognized exactly where we are and thought oh i wonder if this is just a, a short-term part of the cycle and next year might be a little bit different might just be I'm not very productive, but um, it, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to think about. But I think the key thing there, um, and I didn't see that particular post, but it is that thing around consolidation. And, you know, it's, I mean, what do they call it in the IT world or in the tech world? Is it called uh, sprints? Um, but, you know, you have to know when you've reached the, uh, the, the finishing line and, you know, re relax, breathe, consolidate, whatever the right thing is. And just get um, a sense of stability and normality, um, you know, at, at all different levels, whether that's with, with uh, the, you know, yourself, the, with your team members, with your clients. There's only so much change that I think one can easily push through in any given time. Um, and I think what's also really interesting, and, you know, I have tremendous admiration from, for the few firms I see within the financial planning space that have genuinely been able to scale because it's bloody hard and we didn't do it you know I, I um, was tremendously proud as I mentioned of our of our business but we you know we we didn't yeah I, it's funny I sometimes think God, we didn't really get that far god we, you know we only got to a turnover of 1.2 million god that's not much and then you can you know you can always catch yourself and think yeah but that's quite good you know, some people don't even get there. So, so again, I'm I'm falling into that trap, that very human trap of us all seeing whatever people are doing and thinking, "Gosh, they're doing really well." But, but the kind of comparison aside, I do have admiration because that's tough, and it's it's really walking the talk of many of the 
the, the posts that we see. I mean, it is around understanding, you know, Dan Sullivan, what's your unique ability? What is the thing that only you can do? Now, as a small business, it's very hard to do the only thing that's in your unique ability. You, by necessity, have to wear a number of different hats. But it is actually building towards that situation whereby you have other people in the business who are doing great things, which enable you to work in your sweet spot. And I, I talk to, um, thinking of some of the the people that I'm I'm coaching who have this real frustration around, you know, this thing about I want to work in my own u- unique ability and observing other people who appear to be doing that. But I think it's a necessary part of the journey. You know, you you will get there, but it does take time. It it isn't it isn't easy. And as a small business owner, you know, one of the things that I remember and I can still kind of wince about is is the body blows that happen when you lose a key member of the team or there's something crop up. Even within the best run business, there is something that's going to crop up. So there may, may be a, a dealing error. It could be an accounting error, whatever it might happen to be. And you have to go think, right, okay, I need to deal with this now. And But, you know, that's that's part of being a business owner. It's and business, it's, it? yeah. it's business. It's going, going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. And I think it's also understanding that, that oh, this is just today's issue. I just need to deal with it. So, yeah, it's 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 a good thing to remember. Yeah. So what, what struck me before and the point I said um, before I started talking about, um, I can't remember, the previous point. But what I wanted to get to was you said sometimes I reflect on... Um, why we we were successful at Red House, and I, and I think you said something along the lines of sometimes I'm not sure why. Um, but to me, from our few interactions, and and even just this conversation, it was really clear as to why you were successful in building the business to the point that you did. Um, and there's always comparison. There's always someone bigger, faster, you know, whatever. But what you did was was impressive. Um, but it was this point around. I wrote it down. You had a clear vision of the clients that you knew that you could add value to. And I think that's super powerful for any any individual relationship manager, but any relationship-focused organization, period, whether it's recruitment, whether it's financial planning, whether it's whatever. Um, knowing what you're good at and who you serve and why you serve and the value you can add to them is is everything. Otherwise, you're just another one, another another person who's got a service provider. So so can we kind of unpick that? We don't necessarily need to go into who that person was and why you were best to serve them, but I'm interested in kind of how you arrived at that point and how you set up your thinking to solve their problems, if you see what I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is a really good point and it's one of those, you know, you reflect it back to me. Yeah, it, it it was a good thing to be really clear about, and I and I do re, I do remember that. Um, I love the idea of niching, and I wouldn't say that we ever really niche. So the what what worked for us as business owners when we set up the Red House was we felt we could add value to people who had a portfolio of a million plus that were um, or and or earning two hundred thousand pound a year plus who had got um, relatively complex financial planning needs that wanted what we were selling, in inverted commas, i.e. full-fat financial planning, and they were happy to pay our fees, and we, we needed to also like and admire and respect them. So it's, So that's not a tight filter but it at least gives you some rails to run on when the phone rings and you recognize that it's somebody that, you know, probably our service proposition isn't going to be appropriate for either the level of wealth, whether that's because they were earlier on in the journey or they'd accumulated less or because actually, you know, as a, a, a firm of a certain size, to distort the type of clients you're looking after by thinking, oh my God, that person's super rich. We'd love to have them on. For me, that's adding risk into the business that's unnecessary. I'd much rather have 100 clients all with a million pound than a few with 
a much lesser amount, but a couple with, you know, 15 million plus because your business is distorted by having those long tails. So I think it did give us a clarity. I've always said that if I were to set up another business um, and I'm not going to set up another financial planning business, just to be clear, I would love to really niche that down into, um, you know, whether it's a profession or whether it's um, a particular sector of people, because it really does enable, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, but that just gets boring, doesn't it? Well, I disagree. I think it means that you can become very, very good at the thing that you're purporting to do. And which is probably more moving into the well-being angle, which we, as you've said, Tom, may come back to. It really means you understand the deeper issues that exist within that profession's world, rather than just the thinking that you do. Because well, I've got a couple of lawyers on my book, so of course I know what goes on in the legal world. I don't think you really do. So, um, so for us, it was um, it, it it provided a focus, and you know uh, we we pretty much stuck to that. Um, and it was always fun to um, you know kind of like, you know, challenge ourselves. I remember once my business partner, Gareth, um, he had a, a big uh, history in pensions and small self-administered schemes back in the day. So he was very knowledgeable around pensions. And I remember one of our client firm had got a small defined benefit pension scheme. And they said, or it, it came to us, would we like to manage their defined benefit pension scheme for their employees? And I just saw, you know, red warning signs. I think Gareth saw £10 million or whatever the figure was. And we, you know, we properly had to have a, you know, pretty deep debate about, you know, this just is not going to happen. But, you know, that's what good business partners are like, isn't it? You're able to actually kick something around and come back to what is it that we do? What is the essence of what we do? And uh, it was a pretty tough conversation, but ultimately, um, you know, we both realised that it was was not a good idea to take that piece of business on. Yeah, no, that's nice. And I think that sounding board, whether you're a one-man band or, you know, have a, a, a business partner that you can, you know, have that robust conversation with is is really important. And if you haven't got that person in your business, go and find someone. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Even sometimes you just need to, say it to somebody else to hear what you're saying um yeah no i couldn't agree more um okay so what i was really interested and the reason i kind of initially reached out to you is i spent a lot of my time talking to founders of financial planning firms now for, for obvious reasons most of those are still building out their business and because we do a lot of senior uh leadership type work we we constantly have this conversation of the emotional journey that a founder needs to go on when they're building out functional capability of, of their board you know and, and it put that in english when they may need to split their role in half and give away some of their stuff that they've always done previously it's a big emotional kind of journey that that's my job i do it good so why why do i need to um someone else to do it um and obviously you're in a position where you built the business to the point that was right for you. you. You kept true to who you were, but then you kind of got to a point where there was a need for a change and there was a need to identify a, a third party, you know, that shared your values and, you know, Paradigm Norton make their investment philosophy very, very clear for everybody to know and see. Um, but I'm interested not so much in how you made that happen, but the emotional journey that you've been on from, a business owner to transitioning in to, I guess, to some extent, transitioning out. I know you're still involved on a day-to-day -day basis, but there's been a journey there, I'm sure. Um, can we talk about that? Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, it's been, um, it is a, it is a very big emotional journey. And, you know, I think the, there's, with when I, when I reflect back, there's been, um, there was the the prior to us actually getting into the decision that we were looking to merge paradigm uh, sorry the red house in into paradigm Norton. we'd been through a big emotional transition within the business when 
Gareth needed to retire due to ill health fairly suddenly. And um, and prior to that, periods, he had some periods of illness, which meant he was out of the business. So very confronting for a young business and for somebody who's kind of growing into their role. Um, but you come through it, you learn a lot. And then we, when, but, but, but to talk a bit more specifically around that uh, decision to, to, to merge uh, the business into Paradigm Norton, and I am using the word merge, clearly Paradigm Norton were the bigger business. Um, but I think both firms have agreed it, there was a kind of emerging of ways of beings and values such that it wasn't just two plus two equals four. I think it was two plus two equals seven or something ultimately when the, the two businesses coming together. But the the decision to, I it, in my mind, I'd thought on a few occasions, like what at what point do we exit the business? And I think I, I was conscious, very conscious that it's a long drawn out process. So it's not just like you're an employee where you give your three or six months notice and you're, you're out the door. This is something where first and foremost, you have to recognize it's the right point to actually be looking to, to, to sell the business. You then need to identify who a potential purchaser could be. You then need to go through a courtship you then need to go through the legals. You then actually get to completion day, and then you actually have to go through the handover period. So, you know, for us, it was from the start of the process to the end of the transition or the, the formal legal handover period was probably a good four four and a half years. So that's quite a long that's quite a long time. Um, obviously, some business deals are somewhat different to others, but ours was a three-year um, um, handover period, which was which was absolutely fine. You know, you know, going back to one of your very early points, Tom, the point is with a financial planning practice, you're dealing with human beings. You're not just moving bits of um, uh, collateral around. And, and people, you, you can't just decide you're going to change the depot and just move your stock. It, it doesn't work like that. So the... The the journey was emotional in lots of different places. It was um, uh, it was it was a fairly identifying paradigm. Norton was relatively easy, in as much as Linda and I put together a shopping list of attributes that any firm that we were going to sell to or merge with needed to have, and we were pretty fussy. You know, I hadn't spent what was seven eight years of my life building something boutique and beautiful to just flog it to the highest payer. And if that's what people want to do, that's entirely up to them. But that was just never in my mindset. I'd never even thought I'd have a business, let alone be an opportunity to sell it. So um, the, your money wasn't a, um, a prime motivator at all. Um, once we then started to talk to Paradigm Norton, it was then the legal process was uh, drawn out and emotional, telling the team what's going on is a very scary thing to do as a business owner, particularly when you're still three to four months away from completion. And you have to trust that they're not going to hit the doors and you're going to have to trust that the deal's going to go through. Otherwise, you're having to re-energize the team around something something different. Um, we had a last minute hitch just as we were nearing completion, which um, after a period of um, moving through the legal process was exhausting and you have to take a decision at that point about do we believe in this deal do we trust the people that we are selling our business to and do we want this to actually proceed and the answer to those three questions was yes 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 and so we proceeded and then you've got to tell all your clients what's actually happening that's very emotional um we were small enough that I was able to phone all 70 people and I think I got hold of 95 percent of them and then suffer their emotions, hearing what you were doing. And then uh, I think the first year was very frantic time for me because like most deals within financial services, they will succeed because you keep all the people together. And that's both the team and the clients. Um, so there's all of that that was around the deal. And then 
more recently, um, I'm, I'm not actually involved in, in Paradigm Norton now on a, on a day-to-day basis, but as a, you know, probably more on a quarterly uh, basis as a, as a non-exec these days. But then the emotional thing for me has also been, now what? What am I yeah, going to exactly. do? Um, exactly. And, you know, and I think if, if I, you know, I'm entirely honest, that's something that I'm still working out. And um, uh, if I say placing bets on that, that kind of gives the wrong connotation, doesn't it? But what I mean by that is trying things and seeing how they fit. Is this what I want to do? And it's a real opportunity. It's such a privileged time to be able to, you know, really reflect about, wow, what is it that I do want to do? Because I still feel like I've got the energy and desire to do something. Um, But it's working out what that thing is, where somebody said to me yesterday, Maybe it's because, Ruth, you haven't found your real why yet. And I, and I, without getting all Simon Sinecky on you, I, I think that's, that's probably true. It's, um, so, uh, I, you know, I've kind of sk- skated over quite a lot of things there. Um, but, you know, that's how I found it. Other people may feel less emotionally attached, um, but I think small founder business owners, I would be, you know, I think it's quite difficult not to put your heart and soul into it, um, even if you are making sure you're not working at weekends. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, it's really interesting now, isn't it? Because if you if you had this experience that you have now, both as the emotional journey as a founder that's post exit, but also as a, I guess as a permanent. I hope you're okay with this, but you know, someone who's kind of maybe in the sort of retirement stage? I know you're not retired, I'm not saying that. Not a word I I like, but I think it's fair, it's fair to use, um, absent any other, in fact, somebody said to me over the weekend, and this made me laugh, Ruth, you're a a lady without portfolio. And I thought, yes, yes, but which is of course not entirely true, uh, uh, because I'm doing bits and pieces, but it's a, yeah, what is is this stage? What what does it mean? What what, What does it have to look like? Well, what I was getting to is that I think that this experience would make you a significant, I'm sure you were a very good financial planner before, but this experience now, this emotional understanding, you know, is, is so incredibly valuable as a, as, as a person of your profession, um, that I can see why I could, you know, it's so clear the value that you could add to a relationship manager, a financial planner, because um, you've kind of lived and breathe this it's just it's just interesting to think about it Mm. i you know i what i've been reflecting on and particularly with my work for the institute of financial well-being and the and the reading i i've been doing around broader well-being and behavioral finance and psychology i'm pretty sure that we're not having the right conversations in the wider financial planning profession um I'm sure there are a few that are doing it really well. So, you know, I'm I'm always wary of sweeping generalizations, but I would hazard a guess that 90% are not having the right conversations. And what we do is we, we point our client in this direction of this point in time, whether that's age 60 or 65 or 55 or whatever it may happen to be. And we, we kind of absolutely get them all fired up to make sure that they've hopefully invested and saved well, and they've got to a point in time when they have financial independence. And then we say, oh, that's okay. We can do a really tax efficient strategy. It's a retirement. We can make sure you've got the money that you need and think about your inheritance tax money. And all this stuff is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm absolutely not underplaying it. But the thing that we're really not addressing, I think, is the elephant in the room, and it's the next evolution of financial planning as I see it, is to actually have better conversations about their wider well-being rather than just their money. And, you know, for me, it's one of those things that I do feel quite passionate about. And it, and almost, to my mind, having this knowledge now makes me, I can't unthink it. it, it you know, it, if we think about why we exist within financial services, the broader financial services in particular, it's all around kind of help talking to clients about money and moving money around and doing all our fancy, clever stuff. But if ultimately we're not making clients more happy or content, 
what you know what why are we doing it and i and i am not sure that the majority of people understand that that's what their role is and yeah it's not surprising given where we've come from as a as an industry and we're not even that old so but i do think we really need to start to think differently in order to continue to add value in this day of tech and ai that is fast approaching yeah um the time has absolutely flown by and i'm i'm um we tend not to go over an hour but we, i think we are going over an hour this one but um this is really really interesting i i mean i just i find people interesting i, I just think the human element of everything that we do as relationship managers is is the most interesting part and why we started this podcast was just to hear Ruth's story and not the financial planner story but if we talk about that then and your thoughts around uh well-being and um the e emotional support and i suppose wider um kind of life coaching probably um that come should come with financial planning um what do you think firms you know what, what do you think is the future what do you think it will actually look like over the next few years and what what can businesses start to do to develop their their thinking and, and knowledge around this space There's a couple of questions in there but take, mm. take no I, I, yeah. I get i get your i get your drift i think firstly it's to um recognize that this is the change that's needed and what I often find, you know, I think the quality financial planning firms, well, it's interesting. There's a number of financial planning firms that go, I've got that nailed. That's exactly what we do. And I'd love to actually see what they do. So I think it's, let's not rest on our laurels. It, this is more than having a nice sofa and a great coffee machine in the office. This is, this is far deeper. Um, so I, I think it's actually really checking where you are at as a business and the type of conversations that are being had across the across the piece with with clients. So, you know, any business of size will have some uh, of their planners that more naturally move into a more coaching style of dealing with their clients. We'll also have a number of of, of people who are much more comfortable around the spreadsheets and the lifetime allowance calculations and all of that. Again, important stuff. So it's like. How do we marry these two different skill sets that we need? And historically, we've expected all of our financial planners to be, um, you know, GP, GPs almost, to be able to be fantastic at high client relationship skills and to be really good at the technical stuff. And they've got a power planner, but it still comes back to them to check off and make sure it's right. And so I think that the business of the future is recognizing that we will always still need to be technically hot, but understand that maybe increasingly technology is gonna do large aspects of that. So how are we going to upskill, horrible word, but you know what I mean, you know, develop our planners to have the confidence to have better conversations with clients that actually broaden the framework away to overall, you know, what, what, what does a good life look like and what is this money for? So I, I, I think it's, it's quite fascinating because, you know, when I think back years ago when I was recruiting, we would probably have much more in mind the technical skill set that we were looking for because we dealt with quite complex clients. Probably wasn't so hard on my radar that people needed to have great listening skills, great questioning skills that were genuinely interested in people, not just seeing the people as a means to the the sale. So I think I think there's going to be a whole thing around um, additional training, maybe retraining. And um, also, what I also think is going to be required is for businesses to start to talk about the fact that these are the conversations that their clients are likely to experience. So you, you don't, you know, I, my objection I hear all the time is, oh, but that's my clients wouldn't want that. Or, oh, you know, Brian, back at the office, there's no way he's going to do that. It's like, well, okay, you know what? If you want to run your business on the basis of one or two individuals that you think you can identify, that's fine. But I don't think that's the right way to run a business that 
is set to be here in 2030 and 2040. So I think it's, you know, it's really having to re-examine what you're doing with your business and where do you want to actually take it. And and I'm not saying all of these things can happen overnight. I think this is this is the start of the next evolution uh, within within financial planning. Yeah, and that's the right word, isn't it? Evolution. Um, mm. I think I'll. We could go again, but I think we'll we'll <laughs> we'll draw it to a we'll draw it to its inevitable conclusion. Let's do that, Ruth. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Um, we, we we do have our quick fire round. I'm sure uh-huh. I'm sure I make this joke every time, but I'm sure you've listened to many of our podcasts. Um, but Indeed. Yeah. The, the purpose. <laughs> uh, the purpose of of the quick fire round is that we'll ask you five questions which i normally have in front of me and i don't now so i'm gonna have to try and remember um but don't think about it too much just 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 say what comes to mind okay um so ruth in in one word how would your partner describe you blimey (laughs) there that's how they describe me um I think it's very difficult, isn't it, to encapsulate in one word, but um, how would they describe me? Painful. I'm just thinking that, Tom, because, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I think it's, I, I have all of these various ideas that I'm kind of throwing around and, 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 and so it's kind of a, oh, I thought you were going to be doing this. Oh, no, you're doing something different. So I don't know why painful came to mind, but I think I'm just conscious that I'm going through this stage of transition. And so anything and everything is on the table or off the table on any given given day. So um, let's roll with painful. Okay, that's a first, but I'll, we'll go with that. Um, <laughs> uh, what are you currently reading? Um, I am reading, I've, I am reading a novel actually called Daisy and the Six and I've just finished um, Lessons in Chemistry which is another novel that I absolutely loved Um, but the other book that I read before that on a more business front is um, it's called Something About 10x in Your Business and I found that fascinating so that may be the most useful one for your listeners I'm not sure but um, it was fascinating. Oh, and the other book, I come, I've got into the habit of reading a couple of books at a time. The other one is Untamed by Glennon Doyle, which um, is a great book for the women who may be listening. Okay, I don't know it, but um, all right. Um, so who is your role model, idol? I always struggle with that question because there's, there is there are many, but the one I'm going to give you is um, a woman called Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote a book a number of years ago called Eat, Pray, Love that became a film. But she's also somewhat of a philosopher, I would say, in the, in the, in the women's space. And she's somebody who isn't, who isn't afraid to put herself out there to stand up for what she believes and make difficult choices. And I think that's something that we can all learn from and she's quite a gentle soul as well Hmm. sounds good sounds good what's your pet hate this is my favorite (laughs) um i really it really irritates me when people are late okay yeah yeah and you know i've i've been trying to get over myself a little bit around that but (laughs) but i so basic isn't it it's what, sorry? It's just so basic, isn't it? You know, you know, it is, it is to me. And um, yeah, so yeah, I guess that. Mm. Okay. And I like, right. here's, here's one as well that, that, that you'll go, oh God, Ruth, why did you mention that? Plumping up the cushions on the sofa, people not plumping up the cushions on the sofa. I mean, it <laughs> makes me sound like a right uptight so-and-so, doesn't it? It's just one of my things. Oh, oh. <laughs> now we know. Anyway, um, final question then, Ruth. Um, Signia are paying, so congratulations. Um, Thank you. You can go anywhere in the world um, for one week. Where do you go? I would probably be in a ski resort um, and uh, 
I, I've never been to Japan and I also hear there's great skiing in Japan. So if you're going to pay for me, it's brilliant, Tom. I didn't realize that was the fee for this, but that's so good. <laughs> um, yeah, a Japanese ski resort would be fabulous. Thank you. Oh, that's a pretty good one, that, actually. But um, yeah, well. I'm not sure about yeah. su sushi of a lunchtime, but I'm sure I could get used to it. But. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Tom. It's been good chatting. <laughs>